Good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor here at Pulpit Rock. I'm really glad you're with us. Um, really thankful for that time of worship. I'm thankful for the honesty with which Tim prayed. I relate to what he said in that prayer. God is good, definitely. Um, sometimes that's something I have to trust because I don't always see it, and I know that's the journey of all of us. And so I want to talk about that goodness of God today. Um, what I want to do, though, to get us there is look at a, a story in the Bible. Uh, and to look at that story, I want to set it up with this. Suppose for a second you are the God of the universe. That will be easier for some of us than others, but suppose for a second you are the God of the universe. And since the creation of all things, you had had this plan that one day you were going to come to earth as a human. You'd prophesied about it, you'd pointed to it, you'd orchestrated it, and then finally the day came and you were born and you lived your life and for about 30 years you walked the earth and nearly no one knew who you were, right? That's the beginning of the Gospels. No one knew you were God incarnate, or just a few people knew you were God incarnate, the only Son of God come to earth, and now after 30 years of secrecy, it is finally time to let people know, to clue them in to who you are and to why you've come. How would you do that? Where would you start? What would be the first thing that you, as God of the universe, would do to reveal to people that, hey, I'm here? You know, I bet if we had an hour and like a giant whiteboard where I could write down all of our answers and we just brainstormed, I bet even in an hour, none of us would come up with what Jesus actually did to let people know. Do you know what it was? Some of you probably do. Uh, it's, there's a story in John chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find John chapter 2 because I want you to see this for yourself. And at the end of the story, it says this. This is the first sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. So this was it. This was the beginning of it, right? This was the first moment that Jesus said to people, hey, I am God. I'm not like all the rest. I am God, and I'm here for a purpose. And I bet if you didn't know the story already, you never in a million years would have guessed what it was that he did to let people in on that truth. John chapter 2. I want to walk through this story with you because uh, it blows my mind. I, I never would have come up with this. John 2 verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and his Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So quick observation here. Jesus is God. He was sent by God to accomplish something pretty important. So his to-do list is significant, right? Yet he has time to say yes to an invitation to a wedding. Now, if that's true of Jesus, I think this is probably true of you and I. We should never grow so important that we don't have time to say yes to invitations, right? Like God shows up at parties. And God's going to show up at this party because Jesus is there. So verse 3, look at how God shows up. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now Mary is giving her son the, uh, the passive-aggressive mom nudge. Jesus, Jesus, do you see the wine? You know, 
She's doing one of those. She doesn't ask outright. She just kind of nudges. And it may sound like she's bringing up a, a kind of a small, very trivial problem. Uh, it, it's not a huge problem, but in, in, in Jesus' day, weddings would go on for days. They'd go on for sometimes a whole week. And so for the family, this would have invited a little bit of shame on the family. Groom's family would have had to go out, buy a whole bunch of wine, and that would have cost a lot of money. So it, to our eyes, maybe not a huge problem. In Jesus' day, this was a significant problem. It's an honor and shame culture, and so this was a big deal. But Jesus responds to his mother this way. Look at verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, before you start quoting Jesus to the woman in your life, <laughs> Jesus is not being rude. In the original language, woman... Is a, th this is a term of endearment, doesn't quite translate that way to our language. And then he uses this idiom, my hour has not yet come. That also doesn't translate really well. Basically what he's saying is this, this is not a concern that I am responsible for. And so real clearly from that, we see that what his mom is asking is, would you take responsibility for this problem, even though it's not yours? Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, which is awesome uh, to me. I think, like, she just totally ignores what he says, right? And if you're the mom of Jesus, you get a pass. Uh, it just goes to show, though, even if you're uh, the God of the universe, like if you have a mom, she's going to tell you what to do, right? <laughs> that's just, that's how it goes. Uh, Jesus, he's a good son. He listens to her. He's intreatable here. I, I think that's the bigger lesson. Is she says, hey, would you do this thing? And he's like, yeah, I, I could step into that. Verse 6. Nearby stood six t stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now that's lost on us. Uh, in Jesus' day, religiously observant Jews, they would wash a lot. Uh, there were spiritual reasons for this. It had to do with this desire to be pure, this desire to be righteous before God, and this belief that there was all sorts of wrong things or behaviors that you could do that would make you impure. And then you had to like go through this washing to make you pure again, right? What's really fascinating to me is to study in the Bible the way that Jesus interacts with this religious system of purification. Because for the most part, like we're about to see here, he doesn't show a lot of respect for it. And I think it, the reason is obvious. He doesn't respect the system because Jesus is the system of purification right? He came to fulfill and to replace all of these religious customs and all the hand washing and all the sacrifices and all these special customs that people would do never made anyone pure, but Jesus' death and his resurrection would make us pure. And so he doesn't really respect these human systems. He's constantly pushing back on them because he's going to replace them with himself. And that's what he does in this case. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. So in that moment, Jesus created 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That is a lot of wine. That is 750 bottles of wine about. That should get you through the wedding right? And as much wine as that is, which that is a notable amount of wine, that is not the most notable thing about this miracle. Look at what the master of the banquet notices, verse 9. 
The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So what's most notable about this wine is it's amazing, right? Like this, he's astounded. This isn't just wine. This is the best wine, right? And here's the punchline. Here's the point of the whole story. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Hmm. It's weird, right? It's weird. It's okay to say it's weird, even though it's in the Bible. It's weird. Something we would have never guessed. The God of the universe who created everything, the holy God who's unlike anything else, the redeeming God who makes all things new, shows up to this wedding with his mom and with his disciples. And his mom, one of the few people on earth who knows actually who Jesus is, encourages him, hey, now's the moment. Reveal your glory. And Jesus, he looks around the problem. He sees the, uh, or looks around the party. He sees the problem. They bought a bunch of wine. It's all gone. And now this family's facing some embarrassment. And it's not an earth-shattering thing. But nevertheless, Jesus says, yes, mom, I'll do it. He steps in. He makes wine. And in doing so, reveals his glory as the incarnate God. He reveals he has total power, even down to the molecular level. Like we recognize, that's scientifically, that's what he did here, is he changed the molecules of this substance from H2O to wine to a whatever, you know. <laughs> Someone Google it. What's the chemical thing for wine? And I'll fix it in the second service. Anyway, um, so the crisis is averted. Host of the wedding is not going to be embarrassed. And the people who realize what happened say, wow. They believed in him, and they didn't have all this whole thing figured out about what he was here to do and all that sort of stuff, but they said, this guy is not like anyone else, and they decided to follow him. If I was God, never in a million years would that have been my first move, right? Of all the miracles he could have done, this one seems almost trivial. I mean, it's impressive, but it seems kind of pointless. It's just a little thing, and yet it was the first it was the start of the revelation of his glory. Now, there is so much in this story that I think is, is worth digging into. But I want to just, I want to dig into one question in particular. Because this is what has stuck in my mind. Why did Jesus make good wine? Have you ever thought about that? Why did he make good wine? Not why did he make wine, but why did he make it good? Like, why did he make it the best ever? Like, how, what is it about that that uniquely reveals his glory? Because he's Jesus. He could have very easily made something like this, you know. <laughs> I just noticed the name of that. I picked out this picture, but it's called Chillable Red. <laughs> it's classic. It's convenient because you can stack them. Uh, so you know, if you're going to make gallons of wine, that's put it in a box. But he didn't make that, right? He made wine that a seasoned wine connoisseur would taste and instantly recognize as high quality, the best. Why did he do that? Once you keep that question in your mind, we're going to talk about uh, some uh, other scriptures here, but I want to come back to that question in just a minute. Uh, Kyle mentioned we're in this series on taste, and uh, or a series on senses, and we're talking about taste today, as you can probably guess from the story that we chose. We're considering this idea of what happens when we take a sip 
or a bite, and it's like really good. And how does that reveal Jesus to us? The Bible actually says a lot about taste. Yeah, you may note from Genesis, it's the second thing that God ever says to humans. The first thing God says to humans is be fruitful and multiply and take care of all creation. The second thing God says to humans is, hey, these plants are really good. They taste delicious. And don't eat these plants over here. That was the second thing he said. And there's all these hints throughout the Old Testament that taste is something we should pay attention to. God commands his people to celebrate certain feasts and to eat certain things and to avoid eating certain things. And somehow this, uh, this whole idea of eating and tasting stuff is a theme. There's a connection between it and knowing God. Psalm 34 is maybe the classic verse that connects these two. I sought the Lord, he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. You know, Jesus, he connected it to our sense of taste. He said, everything that I've done, everything that I've come to be, when you taste this bread, when you taste this cup, let that taste be a memory. Let it remind you of my purpose here on earth and of what I've accomplished for you. He connected those two. Uh, the New Testament author Peter, he says, like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So in much the same way as the master of the banquet takes the sip of wine and he instantly knows this is the good stuff, we're encouraged that the same thing will happen if we just taste God. The Bible says if you just taste what he has, you would surely know he is so good and it would be like there is this involuntary reaction in your soul to his goodness. You know, that's something we know like when we eat something that's good, right? We have an involuntary reaction in our body. We're, like we're instantly happier. We're instantly in a better mood. Our faces light up. We instantly express it. Well, we might say, ooh, try this, or mmm, that was delicious. Just like the master of the banquet, he had to express it. And what's weird is like the same is true if we taste something bad. Like if we take a sip of sour milk, what do we do? We have like this involuntary reaction. Oh, we make the face, maybe we spit it out. And for some reason we're like, oh, I think that's bad. Taste it. <laughs> I don't know why we share it, but uh, whether it's good or it's bad, when we have it, when there's a strong taste, it elicits a response. Have you ever wondered why God gave us taste buds? I did some research. I, there's some biological benefits to this, like what they say is when we were hunters and gatherers that our taste helped guide us towards more nourishing food. And I guess that makes sense. But I think sometimes our taste buds are stupid. Right? I mean, sometimes they don't help us at all. In fact, sometimes they work against us. Some of the best possible foods for us taste horrible to us, right? Like stuff like kale, <laughs> Greek yogurt. Why are the Greeks, why, why is their yogurt so bad? It's just horrible, right? Or beets. Beets are horrible. If, let, nobody likes this. If, if God wanted us to get nourishment from beets, he wouldn't have made them taste like dirt right? The point is, there are like some functional reasons for taste, but surely there would have been a better or a more efficient way to point us to nourishing food. Yeah, because we're fooled all the time. Why did God do it that way? So I was reading uh, Screwtape Letters, which uh, if you know, one of the greatest theologians of the last century was C.S. Lewis. Um, 
is he writes the Screwtape Letters, which is this really interesting fictional dialogue between two demons, all right? So you need to know that going in, because otherwise you'll be really confused. These are demons, enemies of God, talking to each other, and one is giving advice to another demon on how to wreck the life of the human to which he is assigned. And he has all these incredible insights into just how we get off track as humans. And I was reading it, and he said something that I think begins to answer some of my questions. Um, so this is advice from one demon to another. So these are enemies of God talking to each other. And uh, th the demon says this. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying forms, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. He made pleasure. All of our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Interesting. He says, he is a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only like foam on the seashore out at sea. Out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hands are pleasures forevermore. Ugh, he is vulgar. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it fascinating to think that the God that we worship is the God who invented pleasure? It's fascinating. It's his idea. I'm going to say something that may seem obvious to you, or maybe... This might sound real scandalous to you, but either way, I think it's, it's the truth. God created taste buds because he wants us to experience pleasure. I think it's as simple as that. That's the sort of God he is. He is a God who wants you to experience pleasure when you eat good food or drink good wine. Do you believe that? Does that sound scandalous? It does a little bit to me. I struggle with this idea. I think I've inadvertently come to believe that if I enjoy something, that God is probably against it. All right, or, or at best, he just doesn't care. Am I the only one who believes that lie? I think this is what the demon in Screwtape Letters is pointing out and what C.S. Lewis has so uh, eloquently described. God created pleasure. It's his idea, not Satan's. He created things like strawberries. Like, can we all agree, strawberries are really delicious, right? And then the demons came along and created beets. <laughs> right? Beets are an ungodly distortion of everything good. And, and listen, God is the one who just because he thought it would be awesome, gave us all thousands of cells in our mouth that could tell the difference between strawberries and beets. He did that because he is a fan of pleasure. He isn't against it. On the contrary, he is for it. And he is so for it that when God comes to earth and wants to reveal his glory, wants to let us know, hey, I am God, in a way that we would surely understand only God could do it, he doesn't just make wine. 
he makes the best wine ever. He makes the sort of wine that as soon as you taste it, you have to run over to your friend and say, wow, most people bring out the Franzia after everyone's drunk, but this stuff is amazing. I've never had wine like this. The psalmist says, taste and see, the Lord is good. Peter says, crave pure spiritual milk. Now that you've tasted, the Lord is good. And the master of the banquet says, you have saved the best for us. You know, what I think God wants to say to us through the sense of taste and through this story, it's, the, it's really the first thing God wants us to know about us, about him, I should say. He is good. Our, our sense of taste is proof of that. He is good. It convinces us, our tastes do, that he is good, that he is trustworthy, that he intends the best things for us, that after all the other wine that we have been drinking, he, we finally taste his wine and we realize, gosh, you've saved the best for us. It's as if we've been drinking boxed wine and eating beets all our life, and Jesus comes along and says, just taste this. Just taste it. Here's maybe another way to say it. Um, all of our life is not good. Like, that's true for all. All of our life is not good. No one in here has a good life in total. But we all have good in our life. And that good points us to the heart of God for us. Points us to the truth about God for us. Pleasure was invented by God for you to enjoy because he's trustworthy, because he intends good for you. God fights for your pleasure. You ever think of that? God fights for your pleasure to redeem it, to protect it. To keep it from being distorted and twisted in our lives. Here's another way to say it. Good wine is a sermon. Good wine is a sermon. It is a sermon that preaches to our hearts that God can be trusted is trustworthy, that he's good. Our taste buds are preaching to us. We don't think about it. We just enjoy it. But we need to think about the fact that God created us to enjoy it. Good wine is a sermon. I think one of the things we have to recognize about this, though, uh, about God's goodness, about this miracle, is, is like we would all say that there's a difference between eating food and enjoying food, right? Like those are not necessarily the same. Sometimes you just eat to live, and other times you eat and it's just, it, you enjoy it. And I think the same thing is true spiritually. There's a difference between believing in God and trusting that he is good. There's a difference between just being a spiritual person and really trusting that the God of the universe is good and intends good for you. And I think some of us, we engage in our spiritual life. I do this a lot, like in the same way that we eat salad. Like, has anyone ever eaten a salad and been like, oh, man, this salad is so good. Uh, no, we don't. None of us like salad. Wait, 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 wait for it. I would submit to you, none of us like salad. We like salad dressing, right? <laughs> because whatever salad you're thinking of, I promise you it had dressing on it. Because that's the truth of salad. It's like we dress it up so we can tolerate it. We're like, well, that's healthy. Let's put some of this stuff on it. And Oh, oh okay, I could choke that down. Some of us... Some of us relate to God the exact same way, don't we? It's like, oh, God, I know this is healthy. Oh, God, I, I know this is good for me. Is there a way we could dress it up and maybe I'll choke it down? And um, Listen, God's good for you is not like salad. 
Can we just pause? I think that might be the most profound thing we've ever had on our screen. <laughs> just take a picture of that. God's good for you is not like salad. His good for you is not something you have to dress up. Like, his good for you is actually something that you would recognize as good. You might not instantly recognize it as good, but it's actually something that when you taste it and when you truly experience it, you'll say, gosh, that is good, just like the master of the banquet. Jesus made good wine because he's God. God's not capable of making things that are not good. Jesus made good wine because God doesn't know how to make cheap wine. Everything he wants to do in our life is like that wine. You know, we talk about sin, we talk about how it bothered God, how, uh, how it bothers God. I, I think we should consider this perspective, because I think this is closer to the truth. Maybe the reason God wants to deal with our sin is because he hates to see us drink cheap wine. You know? When God says, hey, I have something for you. Hey, don't do that thing. Hey, do this thing over here. When God says those statements to us, he is fighting for our deepest pleasure because he's good, because that's what he wants for us. My son Carter is 18. Um, he turned 18 in February. I, I remember, though, when he was three, and Becky and I, we grew concerned. He was our first, uh, and we were concerned that he wasn't going to make it to 18 because he was living on really just two foods, box mac and cheese and chicken nuggets with ranch. Um, was all he ate, and it, we didn't know because he was our first that it's a phase. Parents, if you have a three-year-old, that's all they'll eat. Hey, they'll get over it. Don't worry about it. Don't stress. But we would stress about it because we didn't know, and we tried to get him to eat other foods, and it never would work. I remember one time we uh, took him out to a kind of nice restaurant, uh, like in terms of restaurants you would take a three-year-old to. It was fairly nice, right? And there's a kid's menu, and so naturally Carter ordered mac and cheese off of the kid's menu, and... Um, uh, what we didn't know is that this restaurant did not have box mac and cheese, which was Carter's preference. Um, so what they brought, they, they brought this amazing bowl of bacon mac and cheese with breadcrumbs sprinkled on top. And I had two thoughts simultaneously. My first thought was, wow, I should have ordered that because it looks amazing. <laughs> I don't know what, I probably ordered a salad, like, right? <laughs> but my second thought was, oh, no. What have we done? Because if you have a three-year-old, you know, sometimes that, mm, they're not super adventurous eaters. And uh, I, I knew there was no way our little three-nager was going to go for that bacon mac and cheese. What Carter wanted was the Kraft mac and cheese, the kind that turns like that bright yellow color. And this was like whitish because they used real cheese. Um, so I spent the next 30 minutes trying to talk my son into trying a bite, and I had to take a few bites just to test it, of what was like probably the best mac and cheese I've ever tasted. Yet despite all of my urging, my three-year-old would not take a bite of this mac and cheese. And so we leave the restaurant, we go home, and what do we do? If you have a three-year-old, you know what we did. Yeah, we made box mac and cheese for my son. Um, you know, children tend to gravitate towards the taste that they're familiar with. Spiritually speaking, I, I think we do the same thing. We all have stuff in our life, and it is like box mac and cheese. We can't live on it, it's, but we like it. And God comes along and says, hey, I have something so much better for you than that thing. And our temptation is to be suspicious. 
Our temptation is to be skeptical like my three-year-old was. Our temptation is uh, to think he's trying to get us to eat salad or something. He might say, listen, I want you to grow in that area. Or I, I, want, I, want you to, I want you to be honest with someone about that sin struggle. Or he might say, I want you to pursue healing. You've lived in that bitterness for long enough. Or he might say, I want you to, to extend beyond your comfort zone. I want you to love someone who's hard for you to love. Don't eject from that relationship. And when God nudges us in those ways, it, it's called conviction. It's one of the works of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Um, it, it's really different, though, than shame. A lot of times we interpret it as shame. Shame is like the statement that, hey, you're a bad person. Conviction is different. Conviction nudges us towards God's good for us. Conviction is not about how bad we are. It is about how good God is. And it's a nudge to walk into that goodness. And I think for all those things, when he brings those messages to us, when we feel our heart nudged in that direction, it's like he's saying, listen, I have some bacon, mac, and cheese for you. We're like, well, but I'm really used to the box stuff. He's like, just, just taste it. Just taste and see. This is good. And I think if we did, we would conclude the same thing the master of the banquet did, that you've saved the best for us. Let me give you a, a spiritual discipline to do this week. This is something I want us all to do. And if you uh, do it, uh, email me, to let me know how it goes. But uh, this is something I want us all to try. So listen, God gave you a body, right? He designed your body to feel pleasure. That was his idea, not Satan's. Um, so at least once this week, I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to sit down with something that you really enjoy eating. Like not, it doesn't have to be healthy for you. It probably won't be healthy for you. But uh, sit down with something that you really enjoy eating. And you can't worry about calories. This is a spiritual exercise. Calories don't count. Um, find something that makes you smile, that's delicious to you, that makes you enjoy those taste buds that God put in your mouth. And then I want you to pray this prayer with God. Uh, we'll put it up here on the screen. Yeah. Take a picture of that so you can remember, Lord, you made this taste really good because you are really good. That's true. Lord, you gave my mouth the ability to taste this because you intend good things for me. That's true. And then I want you to just ask God this question, Lord, what good thing in my life do you want me to try with you? It's a metaphor, not a food necessarily, but something, something he might lead you to something he might nudge you towards or nudge you away from. And then after you pray that prayer and you're sitting there with that food, I want you to just have a religious experience with that food, you know? Just enjoy it, lick the plate, like just enjoy the fact that the God of the universe thought it would be a good idea for you to have taste buds. And when you do that, I want you to picture this. Picture the face of Jesus in this story. Picture the smile that came onto his face when people started enjoying the wine that he had made. He has that same smile for you. What he wants for you is good. It may not be what you're used to. It may be a stretch for you, but it's better than what you're used to. Trust him. He is good. He is only good, and he's only ever intended goodness for you. Could you trust him enough to try that thing? Taste and see. Let's pray. God, we receive the, the pleasure that we experience in life was your idea. 
And we confess, we can twist it, God. We all do that. But in its pure form, it is your idea. And we receive that from you. We receive that as your goodness. God, allow those moments to lead us and to build our trust in those other moments that are a little bit harder for us. Allow us to lean on those truths that you're good. God, we do trust you. You have given us good. And we will follow wherever you lead us.